I'm Jordan Marr, and this is The Ruminant, a podcast about food politics and food security and the cultural and practical aspects of farming. You can find out more at theruminant.ca or email me, editor at theruminant.ca. I'm on Twitter, at ruminantblog, or find me on Facebook. All right, let's do a show. Hey everyone, it's Jordan. Today we're going to take a look at the chicken industry in the United States. My guest for this episode is Patty Anderson. My name is Patty Anderson, and I'm the Senior Program Officer in Food Systems Policy at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. I also teach a course at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health on public health communication. And I see my career as being at the intersection of translating research into better public health policy and better communication about why, why public health is important. Lately, one way I've been producing episodes of this show is to search for people doing interesting work in the food and farming realm and invite them on the show to talk about whatever they like. This is how I connected with Patty, and when she accepted the invitation, she suggested we discuss unfair practices in the chicken contracting industry in the U.S. and how this system hurts many farmers. And that's just what we did. Coming right up, you'll hear our conversation. After that, the ruminant segment you've been thinking about taking home to meet your parents. It's the Farmer Questionnaire. All right. Here's my conversation with Patty Anderson. Patty Anderson, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Patty, could you start by telling us about the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and your specific role there? Sure. So the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future is an academic center based at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore. And we apply science and systems thinking to help build healthy and equitable and resilient food systems. So we've been around since 1996, and we've studied the environmental and public health impacts of food animal production practices in particular. And my role here is as a senior program officer in our food systems policy program. And to to dwell on the Center for a Livable Future for just another moment or two, um, can you give us an example or an idea of like some some work that those folks have done? in the recent past or, you know, that, that kind of got you excited about that organization or just that, that was um, felt particularly meaningful or effective as, as far as, as far as like policy changes or other work that they've pursued? Absolutely. I think that CLS has done work at the, at the local level in Baltimore all the way up to kind of global uh, involvement with the United Nations and the uh, climate change work of the United Nations. So um, CLF has has really kind of tackled some of the most pressing issues in the food system, um, whether it be the way we raise animals for food, um, the impacts of seafood, um, the different types of diets that, uh, that people eat around the world and, and potential impacts on climate change associated with those. And, um, you know, part of what what the center was founded on is not just doing research for the sake of research, but helping to translate and implement implement uh, the findings of those research into evidence-based policies. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, Patty, you and I are going to talk about the poultry production sector in the United States and some rule changes that the USDA is currently considering that would affect how the contracts between poultry producers and poultry processors are structured. And I'd like to start our conversation by asking you to just describe the mainstream chicken sector in the United States. 
Can you tell us how it's currently structured, who the main players are, and maybe summarize the chain of production from start to finish? Sure, absolutely. So in the United States, the chicken industry has become really highly consolidated. So just four companies, uh, JBS, Tyson, Purdue, and Sanderson, comprise more than half of the chicken market in the United States. And about 95% of chicken production in the U.S. from broiler chickens is produced via the contract farming model. So essentially, these these companies are contracting out to to farmers around the country, and the farmers sign on to contracts with these companies to raise the chicken. So essentially, the the, the integrators or the the large poultry companies will supply the farmers with certain inputs. They supply them with the feed for the chickens. They supply them with the chicks themselves. And they set standards for how, uh, you know, how the chicken houses must be constructed and uh, various aspects of that. And um, so the farmer's job is to raise the chicks for about six to seven weeks. And then the integrators will come and pick up the the full-grown chickens and and process them um, into the chicken that you will find at the grocery store. And so the the farmers around the country, the chicken contract farmers, are people who, um, you know, see opportunity in this process. Um, but you know, we've really seen that that the the integrators have really set up this system to give themselves control for every aspect of the process that has value and leave the farmers, leave the contract farmers responsible for the debt, um, maintaining the chicken houses, um, maintaining, uh, getting rid of the waste and getting rid of uh, birds that die in the process. So um, the farmers responsible for their chicken houses and the land and taking out mortgages on, on those things. And they're responsible for doing any upgrades the company dictates. Um, so um, that's an overall summary of kind of what the, the system looks like yeah essentially like classic vertical integration where these large companies control and own every single aspect of the production chain except the raising from chicks to mature they've 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 (laughs) they've sliced out that one part and perhaps you know perhaps because it's one of the riskiest uh parts of the of the chain Absolutely, it's it's risky and it's not uh, not as profitable. So they've they've managed to control their costs by really integrating vertically integrating this system. Um, but from what we've heard from a lot of farmers and a lot of the complaints that we've seen over the years, it often does not work out very well for the the farmers themselves. Right, and just to to really zoom in for a second. So, for example, they 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 own the hatcheries that 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 hatch that breed and hatch the chicks that get sent to their contractor farms. They own the feed mills uh, that that purchase and uh, process the feed that goes out to those farms, and then they own the processing, slaughter, and distribution all the way to the retail shelves. It's it's just the raising. Uh, it's the farm. The, these these contract farmers receive these chicks. They raise them for six, seven, eight weeks, and then these big companies that we'll be referring to often as integrators come and pick up the birds, and, and that that closes off a contract. Absolutely. So in our email exchange, Patty, like ahead a of this interview, you described uh, a chicken contracting industry that traps farmers in debt. 
Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, and as you really summarized very well, you know, the chicken companies, the integrators, they own most of the aspects of the process that that have value. And so if if a farmer is wanting to get into chicken contract farming and, and sign on, um, they're required to invest a lot of money into this. We know that that creating a chicken house um, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, just one house, and they may often build three or four or five or six houses on their property. So they're investing, you know, likely upwards of a million dollars um, plus whatever they owe on the, the property themselves or the, itself. Um, they also have to maintain any any um, upgrades that the company demands that they may not really have uh, much heads up on. So they they get into the system and the integrators don't really give them a lot of guarantees to work with in terms of what the, their income is going to be. Um, as, and they don't, you know, give them much of a basis to work off of to, to ensure that they're going to be able to pay off that debt. So, you know, it start, it sounds good in the beginning to a lot of the chicken farmers and they get into it and they realize that um, it's not really as it was sold to them. And so they kind of have to keep up on this treadmill of, getting more and more chickens because they're not making much money off of each round of chickens that they, they raise. Um, but yet if they don't have, um, as many chicks or as many, um, as many cycles of, of raising the chickens as they expect, then they're going to be out of luck and not be, get, not be able to pay their bills. And so, um, from what we've heard from a lot of farmers and, uh, who have been in this industry, that it's not what they intended when they got into it. And, um, you know, once they invest all this money in building the chicken houses and getting everything um, up to standards, if they want to get out, they often have a really hard time getting out because these chicken houses are not really well suited to do <laughs> to do anything else with. And so uh, we find that when the chicken farmers um, get into this industry, they may not want to stay in, but then they're kind of stuck due to the, the debt cycle and the fact that they're, you know, there's a lot of costs and not a lot of um, profits on their end. Okay. So a farmer who perhaps uh, has not been a contract chicken farmer in the past learns about this as an opportunity to make farm income. Um, and it on the surface, it can look like a good deal. You build a chicken house to the specifications of these large companies and the companies are holding out the the promise of these these contracts so you spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars it takes to build one house one chicken house and we can assume that a lot of times uh, that's going to be debt financed then they get involved in these contracts and then here's a you know i'm just going to share a few of the things i read in, in preparation for this interview the contracts are often not long term Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're short-term contracts. Sometimes even the contract is just the duration of one hatch of chicks. Um, so, so there's, it's, it's, it's not like they're, the companies are committing to support long-term, which is one way that, that, um, there's a power imbalance, I guess, in the relationship. Uh, and they're not always, there are aspects of the contracts that we're going to get into in a moment that, that aren't very transparent, but I guess the main idea is that, um, because of the size of these companies, 
they hold a lot of the cards and a lot of the power. Like one thing I read is that it's estimated that about a quarter of contract cards only have one company to deal with in their area. So it's not like they can go to another chicken uh, integrator and say, hey, can we work together? Uh, is that all sound about right? Yes. And even if there is another integrator, there are some areas where there might be two or three integrators. They're often going to be pretty similar terms. Um, and, you know, we've seen a lot of lawsuits around manipulative behavior around the, uh, that the industry is engaged in. Um, last year, Tyson Purdue had a $35 million settlement to a lawsuit alleging that the companies pushed farmers into debt and they locked in their comp- compensation at at unprofitably low rates, and so we've seen we've seen a lot of uh, lawsuits that have come out around kind of collusion to keep prices low um, for the farmers themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one one thing we've also noted recently is uh, from the chicken farmers we've talked to, they they gross about twenty four cents for each four pound bird they raise. Um, that's just such a <laughs> possibly tiny amount, but it has to cover their labor, maintenance, fuel, electricity. Okay, so. Yeah, let's stop there. Let's stop there. I was just about to raise that. So it's around six six cents a pound mm-hmm. is the yep. you know is the is the average. Now I think it's important to make one thing clear. Um, I guess for for both chicken producers and non chicken producers alike who are listening, under these arrangements, the companies, the integrators, they're supplying the chicks at their own cost, and they're supplying the feed, and that's important because the feed makes up a very very large percentage of the cost of raising a bird. So it's important to include that when we when we talk about the farmers only getting 24 cents a bird. However, I, I I just can't see anyone hearing 24 cents a bird, hearing that they don't have to pay their for their feed, and thinking, oh, that seems fair. <laughs> like it seems it seems crazy to think that that that's what raising a bird for one of these large companies is worth to a farmer is or what they can expect. And as you point out, all the just about all the other costs they have to cover. Uh, including including getting r- rid of the amount of the huge amount of waste that this type of production produces. Absolutely, it's really kind of unimaginable when you think about that you, you, that you're raising these birds for you know maybe close to two months and twenty four cents for each four pound bird um, or however many pounds they end up being you know a six cents a pound. It's it's really unimaginable um, even when you know the chick themselves and the, the feed is is not included in that in that price. We also know that even even the industry group uh, representing the integrators, the National Chicken Council, they put out a um, a report about about chicken farmer, the chicken industry and the farmers pay. And even they noted that their the farmers pay per pound of chicken went down three percent between nineteen ninety and twenty twenty when it's adjusted for inflation. And they they will argue that because the size of the the number of chickens that you're raising has increased and you're you're kind of packing more chickens into a house that it makes up for that. But you know we've seen you know that that in, in actuality their their pay per pound of chicken is going down over the past thirty years. So um, it's it's gotten tougher and tougher to be a chicken farmer. So. Okay, so Patty, we're we, we're going to zoom in even further on one aspect of these contracts, and and it has to, that relates to how farmers are paid. It's something called tournament pricing. But I think I just want to do a little tangent or sidebar and say, what sparked us to have this conversation 
you you suggested this topic. I reached out to you and said, looks like you're doing lots of interesting work. Could we talk? And what would you like to talk about? And you suggested this topic. And it seems like one reason is currently the USDA via one of its agencies called the Agricultural Marketing Service is is considering some rule changes to how these relationships and contracts work between these contract farmers and these large companies. And so there's there's currently an opportunity for the public to to make comments um, via this agency, um, as they consider some, some rule changes. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what's being considered at that agency? Sure. So there's a few things that are being considered by USDA and its agriculture marketing service. Um, that's really been a long time coming. You know, we've, we've heard that chicken farmers have really been talking about this for for decades. There was a big meeting in 2010 with the attorney general at that time where a lot of chicken farmers came out and talked about some of the issues that they were facing. So um, it's kind of circled back now where we've seen some action. And I think there's been momentum with some of the lawsuits that I mentioned around um, unfair practices, accusing the integrators of unfair practices. But so the USDA is, is starting to take this on and under and, start to develop some rules that that fall within the Packers and Stockyards Act, um, which was passed 100 years ago um, to ensure kind of fair markets in in agriculture and in the meat sector. Um, So I think that that's what the USDA is trying to do. They're trying to uh, make some more rulemaking specific to the poultry industry under the Packers and Stockyards Act. And so uh, the first the first thing they're doing is a proposed rule that they put out that's open for comments through August 23rd. That's about transparency in poultry growing contracts and tournaments. And so it's essentially would require the poultry corporations and the integrate the integrators to more transparently and truthfully disclose information that growers need to make informed decisions about their contracts and better advocate for themselves. So we know it's kind of an imbalanced information system as it is now. Um, the integrators will give, give in information that's in their interest, but they have access to a lot of information about um, the the inputs, like the the feed and the chicks and and other aspects of the business. That essentially these are small business owners, the the farmers themselves, and they don't have access to a lot of information that that business owners in any other industry would have access to, and they have to make serious business decisions that affect their their debt based on really incomplete information that the industry is purposefully not sharing with them. And so that's that's a major problem that a lot of poultry growers have brought up. And um, last week I heard a poultry grower talk about this um, on a Facebook Live event that the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project held. And he got out of ch- raising chickens, but he said if we knew – what we know now, or, or if this rule were in place now, when I was getting into the chicken industry and chicken farming, I would not have signed on the dotted line. Um, there's no way I would have signed on the dotted line if I knew um, the information that, that they would have to disclose in, in this rule. Right. And I can give you a little bit on um, specifically what they're what they would have to share, if that's helpful. Yeah, but I think now let's dive over into tournament pricing because I think it's going to relate to that part, you know, to what you, what what they're looking at. So so this mm-hmm. is just one other aspect of these contracts that um, can be really hard on these contract farmers. So can you describe what how the tournament pricing model works, which is fairly common in these arrangements? Sure. So the tournament system 
is a process for paying the chicken farmers that the industry came up with. And essentially what they do is they dock pay for for farmers who they say have not grown chickens as, as efficiently as the top producers. So after a cycle of, of raising the chickens, uh, they will take a set of farmers and rank them from top to bottom on how well they grew their chickens and who had the most um, chickens that, that turned that feed into pounds of chicken. And instead of giving a bonus to the ones who did really well or giving them extra pay, they dock that pay from the, the farmers that rank low for that cycle. Um, the problem with that is that the farmers don't control these inputs. They, they don't control the, the health and the quality of the chicks that they get or the quality of the feed or how sickly the chickens are. Um, so there's a lot of inputs and a lot of factors that are totally outside the, the farmer's control. And even if they're a wonderful farmer who's doing all the right things, they may still end up at the bottom of that tournament system and get pay docked and not be making the money that they were that they thought they would be making um, because this is really set up as a cost control mechanism for the industry. Um, and it's really something that's not, I haven't seen it in any other industry. Um, and so it's, it's something that's been a lot of, a source of a lot of um, concern from folks watching the industry and people, uh, farmers within the industry have, have kind of spoken out about it. Right. So, so just to review, you know, if the average pay that a farmer's contract says they can expect, you know, is six cents per pound, but they fall in the bottom three out of a group of 10 that have, that are all from one region and all receive chicks at the same time, then they might get those bottom three. So, so the middle four might get six cents a pound. The bottom three might get 4.5 cents a pound and the top three might get 7.5 cents a pound. Um, that that's how this that's how the tournament pricing works and and I I think like on the surface it it doesn't have to be a bad system if it's a fair playing field like if I think about it if it's if it's really truly just men if 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 you can really ensure that everyone's got the same type of feed and the same chicks and everyone feels they have the same conditions and it's just meant to be I mean it feels I don't know I guess it feels a bit um uh harsh instead of just paying a bonus to the best performers to take it from the worst performers. But I can see that it is, can also be viewed as, as a sort of incentive to, to be really good at producing chickens. But I would also think that as soon as you have an uneven playing field and you have these integrators with so much more power and control, it be, it could be, it could be used inappropriately. It could become a real cudgel. What if you've got, what if you've got a, 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 a contractor who complains too much or, you know, is, is, is trying to make change in the industry? Is it possible? I mean, am I being, is it a little far-fetched, Patty, to think that, oh, maybe, maybe they're going to get some poor feed on their, unbeknownst to them on their next, on their next batch or, or like unhealthy chicks? Like, is anyone accusing the integrators of that level of kind of, I don't Absolutely. know, skullduggery? That's definitely been a common concern that there's been retaliation when farmers have spoken out about this and if they don't keep quiet um, that they might get inferior feed they might not get a round of chickens they may um, because sometimes you mentioned the contracts are kind of cycle to cycle for for flocks they might not 
be given uh, as many rounds of chicks. And so that affects their bottom line. And so certainly there's been a lot of concerns about intimidation and retaliation for farmers who um, who speak out about this system. So even we've seen with this USDA comment period for these new rules, uh, the USDA even went so far as setting up an anonymous website where, where folks can enter in information. Um, they can also enter information in the Federal Register anonymously. But uh, a lot of farmers are still very concerned with this process and are afraid to speak out. And you can't really blame them because their their bottom line and all their uh, their livelihood is really tied up in in raising chickens, and they don't want to do anything. A lot of times, that's going to to put that at risk, even if even if they know that the industry is not um, working in their best interest and actually actively uh, working against them. So there's certainly a lot of concerns about uh, about the behavior of of the integrators, um, both in the tournament system and you know just overall in this this contract farming system. All right. So I want to kind of summarize and then go back over to these proposed rule changes. So, so I'm a farmer who became convinced that building a chicken house and working with these large companies is a nice predictable source of income. Um, geez, I've got to make a big investment, but once I do, I'm going to have a guaranteed, uh, source of sales because it's the same company that's going to keep coming and picking up my birds, uh, batch after batch, after batch, after batch. So, I invest, I spend the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to build one chicken house or more. Um, But then I discover once I get in that I don't have a lot of security because these are very short-term contracts. Um, There's not a lot of transparency. I don't have control over the chicks that the companies are sending or the feed they're sending. I, I now realize I'm in this tournament pricing model where if I can't compete with the best in my group, I'm gonna be shorted and, and also we didn't mention, um, I've read that like, if you place in the bottom too much, they can just drop you as a contract farmer. Um, so there's, there's just like a lack of security, a lack of transparency and possible kind of bad faith behavior on these large companies. Um, but meanwhile, I am absolutely trapped in debt. I have no other choice. And as, as one, as one chicken farmer was quoted in one of the papers that you sent for me to read, you know, chicken houses are good for one thing raising chickens. Um, if you happen to be in an area with, with only one or two of the big companies, you, you don't have a lot of options. So it all just adds up to, to what sounds to me like a pretty unfair system. Absolutely. And that's, that's what the hope is that the USDA is going to shed some more light on this and take some more steps to protect chicken farmers under the law and under under the Packards and Stockyards Act, um, you know, I actually spoke to a a former farm chicken farmer this morning, and he said that he he has. I asked him if he was hopeful about this that something things would finally be changing after being involved in this in a long time. And he said, you know, you got to have you got to have hope, and he is hopeful this time that that there will be more leverage for the the chicken growers themselves because, um, you know it will level the playing field a bit more if the poultry companies have to do some of the things that this rule uh, would require, like disclosing the number of flocks and the minimum number of chicks that they're going to get that they will get each year to raise um, so that they, they don't have um, these promises that are unmet about, about the income that they're going to have. So, um, you know, it's not, 
this rule is not going to completely transform the system, but it will give some more leverage points and more transparency back to the the chicken growers, which they they really desperately need. And it's, you know, is something that they've been calling for for a long time. And so, you know, in in addition, we've also called for um, USDA to create a, a contract library. So we've seen this idea of a contract library used in in cattle and in hog production, and essentially it would just be a publicly available resource where where farmers or anybody could go look and see what are the terms of the contracts because the contract terms themselves are are they differ um, they differ a bit and by the company or by the location and if farmers could see what other contracts look like they'd have a better leverage point for kind of getting themselves a fair deal. So um, more transparency around what these contracts look like um, would be a step in the right direction. If I read right, another part of these rule changes being considered is to, to is to make it easier for these contract farmers to band together to for, for perhaps group negotiation and, and other such things, just to give them a little more power as a group. Yeah, that's something we actually felt like they could go a little bit farther on to... Um, to really explicitly state freedom of association, freedom to talk about their contract. So the rule does give some some leeway f- and for the farmers to you know talk to their their business representatives or contacts about the contracts because there's been fear in the past that they can't even talk to um, their family members or their accountant or, or others that they work with about the terms of their contract. So that was something that they were trying to address. But I think we could go, they could go further in, in guaranteeing freedom of association to join poultry growers associations and speak more publicly about, about their contracts, because we do know there's a lot of legitimate fears about, about doing that due to financial repercussions and retaliation. Patty, I'm pretty sure this isn't the first time that rule changes have been considered to make the playing field more fair for contract farmers. Why is there hope that this time um, we could see some real change? Because I imagine the integrators are fighting like heck to to keep these changes from. from... Yeah, um, they certainly are. You know, that's one. They actually just extended the the deadline for comments on this, and in part, it was because they found out that some of the integrators were pressuring growers to submit a letter uh, advocating against any of the changes. And so they wanted the opportunity to look into that a little bit more. So they certainly are fighting against the transparency and saying that it would, it would raise costs. But I, you know, I can't speak to all the, the windows of opportunity that have, that make this time maybe, maybe a time that there's going to be some change, but you know, I do think that there's been a lot more attention on on how we, uh, you know, the, the meat sector and food prices lately with, um, you know, everything from COVID to inflation to the war in Ukraine. And, you know, we've seen, particularly over the last few months, that some of these, these chicken companies, these poultry companies and the integrators have posted like really record high uh, profits. And the price of chicken, you know, has been at a high over the past uh, year or so. And so, you know, something's got to give there, you know, they're, they want to blame 
everything under the sun other than, than the fact that they're they're raising prices on on consumers. Um, so you know the lawsuits, the the profits, um, you know some of these rules, like everything's kind of coming seems to be coming to a head right now with with increased attention. So um, you know maybe that will that will lead to to some of these changes. I think that the USDA has been very thoughtful about how they are approaching this. And if you take a look at their proposed rule, it's uh, it's extremely detailed. And it, you know, everything you'd want to know about this issue is in that proposed rule. Um, they really did um, a really thorough job kind of giving an overview of, of some of the concerns and what the history has been with trying to make changes here. Um, so, you know, I do think that there's hope and there's uh, there's momentum behind this right now. Yeah, I'll I'll I, I'll add that that uh, for a bureaucratic document, very well written. I'm going to post <laughs> to that. I'll post to that that summary um, from the Agricultural Marketing Service, um, or from the USDA. Uh, I'll post to that in the show notes because uh, I used it to to compile notes for this interview, and I was I couldn't believe how readable it was. <laughs> me me uh, too. It, it, I had that very, same reaction. Yeah, and it's very thorough. So if people are interested to to delve into this uh, a lot more. Um, I will post to that. Okay. Yeah. There's also a, um, um, a link I can send you from the group RAFI Rural Advancement Foundation International. They did a blog post on the transparency rule and kind of just like broke down exactly what, you know, what the issue is, what the rule would do in a pretty digestible, readable format as well. So I'll send that to you. Cool. Thank you. Patty Anderson, thanks so much for taking the time to join me to tell my listeners, all about this. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being willing to to talk about this issue. And I hope that um, people found it interesting and would want to learn more. I mean, I've, I feel like for consumers who are, if you're buying chicken at the grocery store or, you know, out at restaurants, this is something that, that affects you as well, because this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is how the vast majority, about 95% of the chicken in this country is growing in this model. And um, if, if you care about the, the well-being of the farmers that raise the chickens, this is, I think, an issue that's worthy of attention. Thanks again. All right. Well, we're just about done. But before we go, it's the Farmer Questionnaire. This time, we'll hear from George Wright of Castor River Farm in Metcalf, Ontario. Who are you and where do you farm? I, uh, my name's George Wright. I farm near Ottawa, just south of Ottawa, Castor River Farm. Um, we mostly grow oats and, and we pro- clean them and process them on the farm into rolled oats. And the uh, main reason I like farming is because it's outside. Whatever I had to be, I had to be outside. So, Why do you farm? I farm... Um, I went to school and I took geology because it was the most outdoor thing I could take at school. And I'd been farming my whole life. Even when I was a kid, my dad had a hobby farm. And I just, whatever I do, I have to be outside. Name a farming mentor and something they taught you. It, it would have to be um, my first ever employer. I worked on a raspberry farm when I was about 13. 
and he was a retired PhD marine engineer who farmed his whole life. And he taught me, he had a big conventional farm, um, but he, he still cultivated. And he, the main thing he taught me was good bookkeeping. Not, but mostly in taxes, but also in record keeping. I, I'm a little more lax on the record keeping, but um, I do all my own taxes and I credit him completely for all that. Um, he, uh, he taught me the efficiency of real production farming. Uh, something I, I, I sometimes am critical of the vegetable guys for not learning more from the real production, you know, grain crops and and row crops in terms of the efficiency and not staying with the big guys, but just behind them. So you, you learn from them, you, you got their speed and you're just a little bit more efficient than them. What tool or practice do you use regularly that you'd have a hard time giving up? Uh, with, without a doubt is my Massey Ferguson 1960 Massey 35. It was my first tractor. It's my go-to tractor for everything I do. I have bigger ones now, but if I can do it with the 35, it, it it's there's no better tractor. And I, I'm critical of, of people who spend a lot of money buying a brand new Kubota when there's such beautiful, well kept, restored Massey 35s around. There's there's no better tractor. Anything can break on it, and I can get the new part that day, even though it's a 1960 tractor. There's a scrapyard about 20 miles away. I can get whatever I need there. I can get parts from anywhere in North America or the UK. I even ordered an engine head on a Friday and I had it installed on a Monday. It is just a part network support for Massey, old Massey tractors. It's just incredible. Um, now that's just the parts side. In terms of being able to turn on a dime, it's incredible. The just I can go down the end of a row cultivating a row crop, and I can turn right back and go on the next one, put the brake on, and spin right around. Um, much more maneuverable than any four-wheel drive tractor. What's one of your favorite breeds or cultivars? Uh, so my favorite crop to grow is is the Hollis Oat. Uh, it was developed in Ottawa by a Dr. Vern Burroughs and accompanied by the name of Semican near Quebec City. They're the they're the breeder for it. And it's called Gale, G-E-H-L. Just happens to be the same as the farm machinery, Gale. Um, it is a beautiful variety. Uh, unfortunately, Semican had a problem a few years ago. They didn't grow enough seeds, so there's a shortage on it. But uh, And I've tried a few of their other varieties, and they're okay, but Gale... Hollis Oats, or also called Naked Oats, is, is absolutely my favorite. I've developed in Ottawa. Are there any do-overs you'd like for your farm business? Um, so I started farming 4-H when I was 14, and I started farming conventionally row crops and stuff when I was about 20. But I didn't start retailing until I was about 35 or 40. And I should have started retailing back when I was 20. I, I lost 15, uh, 15 years of not retailing. Um, now, retailing, everybody automatically thinks of, oh, the more money, you know, you get the top dollar and all that. But for me, 
it was the connection with the customer. Uh, I just, most farmers doing row crop grain and row crop soybeans and corn, they do not ever get that uh, relationship with the farmer. What's the best decision you ever made on your farm? Uh, back again, retailing, retailing, um, selling direct to the consumer, learning the consumer, uh, no consumer wants. We started out mostly growing wheat, thinking milling flour would be our, our, our business model. And within one day, I realized rolled oats was our ticket. And so the very first year we had to start growing rolled oats, we ran out in a month. And, and now rolled oats are probably 90% of our, our grain sales. And be another 9% would be uh, wheat flour. And then we grow several other grains. But so by retailing, I learned what the customer wants. What's one skill set or knowledge set that you lack in your farming that you wish you had or that has vexed or befuddled you? Um, I'd have to go back to high school. It's welding. Uh, I learned how to weld in high school. I've even taken courses on welding. I can do excellent welding in the classroom in perfect conditions. But real world out in the field welding, I'm just terrible at it. It's, I, 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 I just, I've tried my best and I can't get any better at it. Talk about a recent moment of zen or serenity or peace you've experienced while farming. So... I would say it happens every week. I send out a weekly newsletter and I write a story. Um, I'd have to kind of take off. Wendell Berry is my favorite author. And just, I, I can go get into a zone Monday morning at five in the morning. I spend an hour writing a story. And I know, sometimes I don't know what story I'm going to write, you know, at five to five. But, but I have a list kind of a, I call it a quiver of story topics I could write about, but I really have to write about what's concerning me or what I'm thinking about that week. And if I'm really organized, I can get my, my topic in my head all week and I can get some real thinking done on it. Um, keep in mind, I spend a lot of time on the tractor by myself. So I, I, it's, it has to be writing and writing a story for my newsletter for my customers. Who is someone you'd be most interested to interview about their life and or work? It, Wendell Berry, without a doubt. Um, his writing, his turn of a phrase when he writes, um, the history of his fighting for small agriculture has just, just been an incredible lifelong journey. What do you consider a great success in your farming career? Okay. Um, it has to be my kids. Our kids grew up in the farmer's market and they were all kind of shy at first. And so for many years, they were with me at the market or beside me, but we, we tried as quickly as we could, if we could find another farmer's market to go to, especially our little hometown market, our, we'd set our kids up with their own booth. And, uh, that allowed them to blossom, like far beyond their personalities, but, but in, even into like learning how to hustle. Um, and I'm just so, so proud of them. They, um, the one, one of the oldest bought a house at 21, the other one bought a house at 20 or 19, and our youngest, the girl, she bought it at 
at 18 as well. And uh, it's all because they ran their own markets and they hustled. Now, I have to confess, we didn't always make because we paid them. It was always a 50% royalty. They That was their commission or that was their uh, percentage of sales. And that was be after the booth price. And so without a doubt, our proudest, my wife and I, the proudest thing we've done is raising our kids in the farmer's market. <laughs> Today I learned I don't need anything to live on except for a little old you. I've met a whole All right. That's about it, everyone. You can check out the show notes of this episode for links to different articles and resources that Patty and I discussed. Thanks very much to Patty and George for contributing to this episode. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you again soon. All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars And maybe a roll of duct tape And we'll run right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and graces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it